Happy Friday, everybody. You made it. You made it to a big Raptors night in the city. Yeah, I'm not. We've had a few of them. We've had a few this year, but this one feels a little bit different. The major trades are done. Siakam's with the Indiana Pacers, where last night, if you weren't paying attention, he put together a triple-double in his first start as an Indiana Pacer. He went 26, 13, and 10 against the Philadelphia 76ers, and he did all of that in less than 30 minutes, 29 minutes of play, and that's the stat line Siakam put up. He was brilliant. It was fun. The Pacers had a different kind of energy, and I hate Well, I like saying this, but I hate saying it because it's a reflection on what just happened with the Toronto Raptors, but he looked really happy. And this is someone who has talked about many times the joy that is needed to play basketball. Oh, over to New York where the Knicks hosted the defending champions and OG Ananobi had his name chanted at the garden in a dominant win where he had 26 points and six steals. He has been incredible for the New York Knicks. So all this is to say, tonight with Kawhi Leonard in town, tonight after weeks now of separation between the initial trade, after some distance between Masai Ujiri's media conference explaining why he waited and what now Kawhi Leonard arrives in town for his yearly visit with the Los Angeles Clippers. And and I think that it's an interesting inflection point for this franchise as to where they were, where they are now, where they're going, how they got here. All these different elements are going to be at play tonight because people will be patient this season. I don't think that anybody's expecting too, too much. They have had an injury to Jakob Pertl, who is really important to what these guys are trying to do, especially considering that they moved so much of their size recently in these trades. But last time they played the Clippers, it was a gutsy effort. It was one where fans were just happy to be around the game. It was it was joy just that the Raptors were looking good against the LA Clippers and forced them to play tough basketball in the fourth quarter. And, and it's going to be kind of curious to see how this Raptors team not just fairs for the rest of the season because the record is going to be not irrelevant because of the draft pick and the protections, but how the fan base responds to what could end up being a a bit of an ugly rebuild, how some of their players respond to playing poor basketball, basketball without a clear objective, which was definitely winning games. That's all we've really known since the, we, the North era. So I'm going to chat about it now with Seared Zoe. One of my favorites, one of the best on basketball. Again, I'm reading all of her pieces over the last couple of days, and I usually have to stop reading your stuff being like, damn, this is so detailed. I really feel stupid sometimes when I'm reading your work. It's Seared Zoe of The Ringer. What's up? <laughs> Thank you, J.D. I appreciate that. That's my goal is to, I, you know, some people want to make their readers feel smarter, no. but... I prefer to make people feel stupider. That's always been my goal, so I appreciate that. 
but it's a good blend. It's you do make people smarter, <laughs> but also it's a humbling experience reading it as well. Like it's a, it's the perfect you hit the perfect balance of that. <laughs> uh, speaking of humbling experiences, the new look Raptors. Am I right? I know. Well, we're going to talk about that. I, I actually think like, I want to have you on right now because I think that this is this Clippers game coming up is a it's like the perfect inflection point, right? From where the franchise was with Kawhi, how they tried to maneuver afterwards and where they are now. Yeah, that's really interesting. Isn't it funny, too, how, you know, after the Raptors made all these moves, they also just have to take a trip down memory lane at the same time. It's yes. like you get DeMar and and Kyle right after the trades. You have Vince Carter calling the the Bulls game. And then you go see OG, OG Ananobi, and now Kawhi's coming back. It's just, uh, yeah, it's. It's like, I really like the way I really like the way you frame that because there's been a lot of reflection on the past and also looking forward at the same time. And yeah, you know, I think this is one of the things that's really difficult in the NBA. It's really hard to win and then maneuver yourself for the future at the same time. You know, you have to give up a lot of future assets oftentimes. It's like we're seeing that with the with the Golden State Warriors right now too. Um you know, it's just it's just difficult. Even a team like the Milwaukee Bucks giving up so many assets that, uh, you know, while if I feel like they still need to make a move, it's like, well, what what do they what do they have left? Yeah, what even? Yeah, that that Bucks team. I honestly, I don't know what the I don't know what the next move is, other than the coach. But yeah, I I remain pretty pessimistic about that group. But I was pessimistic about the Clippers, and so you were right on that one. So so maybe that's a good thing is to have me be pessimistic in your in your corner as a team. And no, it's it's it, it's a Christmas Carol. Like that's what the Raptors are right now. It's the ghosts of Christmas past, the present, the future. It's all happening at the same time with all the Vince Carter stuff, Lowry, DeRozan, everybody that you had. But I, so I'm reading your piece on the Raptors and the Siakam trade and the finality of this all, and you have this great line in there where you go. Building a team is both art and science. And after all this outpouring of emotion for Siakam and seeing uh, Masai Ujiri at the podium talking about him getting emotional, I, I couldn't help but wonder, did he get too emotional? Was When trying to build the team after Kawhi Leonard, was there too much art? Yeah, I definitely think so. I definitely think so. Um I also think that that is largely how Masai Ujiri has done things. I think that there's sort of this misconception that there's a different Masai post-Kawhi Leonard and post-title, but I think that they built their title team the same way that that it kind of fell apart, too. Um, this, As much as Masai has this reputation of being very cold and calculated, and this is actually something that Eric Kareen of The Athletic asked him during his press conference, like, just, hey, like, do you think you could be more cold? And Masai kind of laughed, and everybody laughed, saying, like, more cold? Like, you know, like, what more do you, how, how much colder could that be? But, um, you know, you saw it in the press conference, and you see it in his team-building style. Like, I, I can't count the amount of times, and this is, you know, this is more when I was a fan or, you know, freelancing and, and not really around the Raptors that I – looked at them and I was like, fired win Casey, fired win Casey, fired win Casey. And it took them a really, really long time to do that. You know, um, they almost traded DeMar and Kyle a number of times and, and they ultimately, you know, they waited in the, until the perfect moment with DeMar and probably waited too long 
with Kyle. Um, and I don't think that's, you know, I just, I just think that's Masai's style. I think he's actually a lot more patient than people think he is. And sometimes that patience really pays off as it did, you know, wait, waiting around for Kyle to come around and, and, and be the leader and the floor general and the setup guy that he was for the title team was obviously worth it. And he also, you know, there's so many memories attached to him. He goes down as you know, probably the most important Raptor in in franchise history. So I don't think that I do think I think you're right. I think that sometimes he does let his hope in players and coaches and staff allow him to hold on to them for a little bit too long. I just I also don't think that that's I think that's a whole tenure. I don't think that that's different than how it was in the past. Yeah, because I think that for me, it it has changed or it did change a little bit post-title because what, what he was really good at with the being patient and the being cold, right? And I yeah, it is it is hard to picture beside you being cold, but it, it seemed like he really, and maybe this is partially luck like all things, but that he struck at the right time with the coldness. And what I still, I guess, can't get past with how the, the way things played out is that they, they knew that there was the two track thing happening when they drafted Scotty Barnes and they went into that series with the Sixers and I, I probably have spent too much time on this. And so, you know, we don't have to do it, but it, to me, it was pretty clear after the Sixers series, even though they had sort of the, the fake comeback, which became a, a Raptors staple throughout that era yeah. of <laughs> man, you just, it was time. It was time to move on. And they knew it because they weren't looking to extend Pascal at that time on a max deal. They weren't looking to give Fred Van Vliet everything he wanted contractually. And they got a little burned trying to, to play that okay. two-track system. And now, like, when all the dust is settled, I think that you can make a pretty strong case that the OG trade was a good one for them. We're going to see how it works out. But at least you got pieces that fit in immediately around uh, your, your young star in Scotty Barnes. But the next one, the Siakam trade, like ending up with three firsts that sound great on paper, but two in a draft that you basically didn't want to be a part of, one that has been called the worst of the decade, like one of the one of the worst since the year 2000. I think that's a little bit of a tough position to be in. So, yeah, I guess like that's my preamble to this. But how, how do you feel about where they settled after all of this and like where they are now? Yeah, I think the biggest miscalculation they made was the Fred Van Bleed situation. Um, they had to know that he was going to go out and get his bag. You know, like we have to we have to consider previous history in this situation as well. Um, I think the thing that caught them off guard was Houston being able to pay him all that money because there was a time when. Everybody thought that Houston was going to be a landing spot for James Harden. And when that fell apart, that allowed Houston to just throw all of their money at Fred VanVleet. And I think the Raptors just were caught very, very off guard by that. But at the same time, I think that's something that they had to be somewhat prepared for. I don't think it was ever a guarantee that Harden was going to go there. I think things changed after Ime got to Houston and there was also always a chance that Philadelphia would have retained him you know it took Philly really really botching that situation um and Harden not wanting to take like there's a number of things that had that had to even break right for Houston for them to get Harden 
Um, and then they just frankly change their minds, you know, and that stuff happens in the NBA. And I think it's just know your personnel situation, know how they're feeling. Um, I just, you know, I, I heard that there was some genuine surprise in Toronto when he left and it was like, what? Like, no one's happy. Um, and I know it was hard for Fred to leave, but I just don't think that that's a situation where, you know, anybody should have been surprised. Um, and then on the Pascal, like, first of all, I just want to say, like, I think you hit the nail on the head with the two that we should be analyzing the most. Um, I think, you know, in his press conference, Masai kind of tried to convince us that the return would have been similar if they had, like, you know, like, compared it to previous deals. But let's be real here. I mean, Siakam forced his way to the – not forced necessarily. I think maybe that's, that's too strong of terminology, actually. But Siakam got to a team that he wanted to play for um, because he only had one year left on his contract and it scared away pretty much every suitor that would have wanted him. You know, he didn't have a lot of interest in going to a Warriors team that looks like it's on the decline and we don't know what it's going to look like next year. He didn't have a lot of interest in going to the Kings. I think that there were a number of teams that you could have gotten involved last year. I think we, me and you talked about Atlanta last year. Um, and those teams, I mean, Atlanta is in a different situation now, just in their own team building, but there was an opportunity to create a bidding war. It seemed like it was pretty well developing that they just never really acted on. And I absolutely think they could have gotten a better return on Siakam a year ago. And if, if, the, if the circumstances conspired in a way that they didn't, let's say Masai is, is being absolutely 100% truthful with that, he still had more value the longer his contract was. So it would have been wiser to understand the situation then. And I think that deadline is always going to be the one that I look back at because that's also the deadline that they decided to go out and get Jakob Pertl, which that really, I mean, that we're, going to, we're seeing the ramifications of that right now where, you know, the Raptors, they, they lost a very important tie break to Memphis, which makes them the sixth worst team in the NBA right now, which is exactly where they need to be if they want to retain their pick this year. Um, but like you said, that was the draft where they, they made that trade, saying that they didn't necessarily care too much about this draft. Now, maybe because of the, um, because of the amount of draft capital that they got back from the Siakam trade, it doesn't matter as much. But, you know, it, it's you don't want to be owing somebody a pick now in a situation where you're essentially rebuilding. And you also, as much as the Raptors right now was constructed and, like, you know, since since Siakam left, they're the worst defensive rebounding team in the NBA. They absolutely miss Jakob Pertl on the court. But what is he doing for your future development, you know? Like, at, at this point, I'm like, well, it, it – He'll help them win games, and I know Raptors fans want to win some games. I think this has been, you know, an ugly sort of whiplash. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, well, Jakob comes back. That's less minutes for Dejounte Porter, and it's less Scotty Barnes at the five, which I think is one of the things that's worked really well and been really fun to watch in the last four games. Yeah, th- this is that. Like, man, there's there's a lot there. I'm gonna start with this. One is I hadn't considered it until you just talked about it, but what. I think a great Raptors what if now is going to be what if they actually had brought in Ime and kept Fred Van Vliet? Like what happens if Harden stays? 
and the Raptors are in this position where now they're treading water this season. Fred Van Vliet's on a massive contract, and then they're still trying to make these maneuverings on the fly, knowing that it, it isn't the right thing with Scotty Barnes. The, the not reading the Fred thing was especially bad considering there were multiple reports that he wasn't happy and he was on JJ Reddick's podcast going, I hate it here. <laughs> not specifically, but that he was not happy with the offense, that he wasn't happy with the, the general vibe of the team. So yeah, that, that misread is a tough one, but yeah, it's crazy to think that they, they really did go into this off season and into the season thinking, Hey, bring this guy back and try to compete with the same group and continue to double and triple down. Like it, it was really a rebuild that what their hand was forced on based on the Fred Van Vleetness. That's, that's the first domino really in all of this. But the, the second part is, okay, the, the draft picks that they bring in and the punting on the draft, and now they're in this difficult position. I feel like it's a nightmare now if they keep their pick in this draft. And all of a sudden, you've got three picks in this draft, and now you're staring down not having a pick next year and San Antonio owns it when it's, when it's a better draft. I think like the Raptors both have to develop and find a way to win enough games where they're not, yeah, mm-hmm. that they are actually conceding this pick this year, that that pick does end up being seven, eight, nine, whatever the hell, so that they don't end up having this kind of loom over them as they're trying to rebuild on the, or as they're trying to rebuild this roster. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. It's something I've actually thought about quite a bit because I'm trying to figure out like, what would you rather have? Would you rather have like a, a mid lottery pick in next year's draft and not have anything at all, which is what would happen if they retain their pick this, if they kept their pick this year. At the same time, I'm like, looking at history, how much appetite do the Raptors have for a rebuild? Like, how many times are you going to miss the playoffs with Scotty Barnes? Part of me is like, do the Raptors plan on trying to make the postseason next year? And in that case, then do they end up giving up like a 16th, 17th pick um, to, to the San Antonio Spurs. Now, you could argue that you'd still rather have that in 2025, um, but that's a big question to be asking as well because you can't necessarily – look, if this was a full rebuild, I'd be fully with you. Like, 2025, yes, just let the pick go this year. But it isn't. You have quickly – you have Scotty Barnes, who both of them – you know, quickly is off – they have four days off right now. I think this is a perfect opportunity for quickly to find his way in the offense. Um, RJ seems like he's just, you know, naturally found a way to fit in. He's been awesome. But I think IQ is a guy who's just kind of been a little timid and his pull-up just hasn't been as good as it normally is, which I think will just kind of, that will be fine. Um, but, I, like, how bad is this team realistically going to be? And if they do get this pick in 2024, Messiah stuff, you know, you can turn all those picks into a potential trade. Maybe that's something that they do. But I do think you bring up a really good point in terms of strategizing. And I just hope, I hope they, I mean, I'm curious what their plan is, what their thinking is with those, because I think you can kind of go in either direction. But I just, I I look at, are you really, how many years in a row are you going to have Scotty Barnes on yourself? Yeah, I, I look at this right now too, though, is it's, it's out of their hands. <laughs> like, I don't, People are like, well, yeah. they should tank, and I'm going, yeah, I don't think, I don't think they have a choice. I watched that Memphis game, and it was brutal. Like that's as bad as a game is gonna get for them this season, right? And sure, they're gonna get Jakob Pertl back, and yeah, quickly we'll play better. I think RJ is just so smart that he's gonna be able to fit in. Plus, his style kind of remains the same. That he's just gonna, he's gonna sort of do his thing no matter where he is. But they're mm-hmm. small. 
now. Like even when Jakob Pertl comes back, I, I was joking the other day that it's like it went from Project 6-9 to Project 6-5 in a heartbeat. Like it's just a, it's a bunch of 6-5 guys running around Scotty Barnes. I don't know if there's a formula for them to be able to defend even when Pertl mm-hmm. comes back. Like teams, teams are going to score on these guys. And Barnes has to navigate himself with this group. And these guys have to find their footing quickly, especially who is really going to be trying to prove that he is... Uh, he's already the point guard of the future for this team, but just, yeah, that he's worth the big bag of money that he's going to need to be tendered at the end of this year. And I think that's why it puts this really interesting question on what you do with Bruce Brown, because he was overlooked a little bit in the Siakam trade by me as well. Like you got three first round picks. That's awesome. That's the rebuild piece. But now you have this guy that would fit on any championship contender. And I think you raised a really good point in your column about how he's, he's truly a good fit next to Scotty Barnes. And so, yeah, I guess if there's a team that comes with an overwhelming offer for you that you have to take for Brown, you do it. But, like, where are you at today when it comes to Bruce Brown and keeping him as a piece as you, as you have a team where, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of guys in new situations. You're trying to develop Scotty Barnes. You're not necessarily just trying to lose every single basketball game. He, he becomes actually a pretty intriguing piece for you in the, in the now and heading towards the deadline. Yeah, he's a really interesting inflection point. I think he's had a really uncharacteristically strange start. Um, you know, just bad hands, turnovers that I've just never seen from him. I just don't expect that to continue to be a trend. It seems like he's still finding his footing. He had that amazing second-half run against Miami that, to me, was like the platonic ideal of how Bruce Brown fits on this team, right? Just cutting rebounding, pushing the ball in transition, playing really well off Scotty, and then also finding Scotty, finding IQ, like being, being simultaneously an outlet and a creator. Um, he's a solid backup point guard. I think he's a better, more stable backup point guard than Dennis Schroeder is, although, you know, we'll see how Dennis Schroeder and also probably maybe more importantly Darko feel about that. Um, but, yeah, I think that there's a way that he fits on this team. To your point, like if you get, like if, if a team is offering you, let's say, like, a really good first and a second for him. Like, do you kind of have, like, can't can give that up? I don't know. He's also, you know, he's a team option next year, which I imagine the Raptors would opt into. Um, but he's a good contract, too. It's like down the line, like, you're looking to clear space as well. And um, I think that's also, like, the, the free agency aspect of this is actually something I haven't broken down and gone into uh, enough with the Raptors. But Bruce Brown is a really good contract in that regard. But it's kind of funny, the situation the Raptors are in right now, and I think Bruce is really indicative of it, where they are versatile. They do run in transition. They have a lot of great hustle, deflections, but it's hard for them to get to the basket. And all of these traits, like, they, they kind of mirror the Raptors of the past and, like, at their best, do feed into the sort of vision that Masai Ujiri had with having Siak emoji and Scotty on the team together. Um, but they're also really erratic and rushed and messy, and they don't really – they don't attack well enough either. I think this is a team right now that has a lot of room for internal improvement as soon as they just figure out how to play off of each other. Like, they get switches and they don't do anything with them. It just doesn't really feel like they know who should be doing what, which is ultimately the issue with a team like that. But they're so amorphous right now. They're kind of like – I don't know. They're kind of, they're kind of like a, they're like different colors together, and you're not necessarily making like you're not trying to make it cohere right now, but you're looking for the colors that kind of pop. 
and you're looking to see like which ones complement each other as well. And like I think I think Bruce Brown is the most amorphous piece of that Play-Doh. I don't know what you do with him. I think he's all, but he's kind of a good problem to have in that way. And that I think you could take it multiple directions with him, and you would be okay. Yeah, I think that too. I I just when I when I looked at them last night and I've watched some of these games and sure they're going to start to fit in with one another a little bit better but that first 2 weeks post trades it was hey look look at these guys they're having fun and they're free and it's mm-hmm. this, this is their team and quickly's embracing the city and RJ's happy to be home and it's it's more centered around Barnes but now I actually look at them and go, mm, you could use an adult in the room. It, it would be good to have guys mm-hmm. who have the skill sets of a, of a Bruce Brown as you're trying to get these guys to develop. And even think about why Bruce Brown was in Indiana, right? It was to help grow some of the young players. It was to help mm-hmm. with Tyrese Halliburton and for these guys to take the next step. So I, I think where I'm at as of today, and this could change, but uh, to me, he's not an automatic. You're just shifting him off to somewhere else. The only question is going to be, Will, will he be cool with that? Will he be happy with that? Or is he someone who's looking at the situation and saying, hey, I, I, I don't mind being here. I'm going to be a good soldier. But if a, if a good opportunity comes for me to go back to a contender, I, I really want you guys to pull the trigger and take it. Because I, I, if he has that, if mm-hmm. he has the mercenary vibe, I think that's a problem for them. Mm, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, if there's, if there's something that Bruce Brown wants and they don't give it to him, I think that's, you I mean, his, he, I think Michael Grange talked to him and Bruce was like, I'm, I haven't asked for a trade. I'm not asking for a trade. We'll basically see what Messiah wants to do. So that is good for the franchise right now. But yeah, if things really fall off the rails and he's like, I'm not happy and I want to win titles. And I think my sense with Bruce Brown right now is that he won a title um, and any contender would love to have him. And he also got his money. So he seems pretty content right now as much as like nobody in the middle of the season. I just think it's kind of good to be Bruce Brown right now. It feels like that'll at least last for a little while longer. And, you know, it seems like... I think it's, it's also... The things that you're talking about right now is just something that the franchise and the fan base is going to have to develop a better appetite for. This is how it's going to look. This is what a lot of people ask for, but this is what it actually looks like on a day-to-day basis. So, yes. hey, yeah, that's just... That just is what it is, you know? Like, yeah. it's, it's time to start looking for silver linings, you know? It's time to look at lineup combinations and be like, oh, I like that one. It works. The bench yeah. is a mess, but, you know, yeah. Scotty at the five and the starters aren't so bad and all that. Like, that's, this, like, this is, like, buckle in. Like, these are the things that people are going to have to be, <laughs> start getting happy about, you know? Yeah, I, I was going to say, the rebuild was so much better as a concept than a reality. <laughs> right, yeah. The concept of the rebuild was super attractive. Watching them get uh, browbeat by the Memphis Grizzlies without any players was different. Was going, oh, right, um, turning games off in the third mm-hmm. quarter so that you could watch Carl Anthony Towns uh, get benched in the fourth quarter in a 62-point performance. Yeah. That's that's the reality of the situation now. That yeah. That's kind of where we were at. And, yeah, I, I just, that's the, that's going to be the I interesting like, thing moving I, forward. Yeah, I feel like somebody needs, like, maybe you should do this. Like, you should put together, like, a guide to navigating the rebuild with the Toronto Raptors because there's probably some Raptors fans who weren't, yeah. 
Step one is get NBA League Pass. <laughs> make sure that you yeah. have yeah. a package to watch <laughs> other games once it hits the third quarter on many, many nights. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Here are some teams that you should be watching, by the way. Um, yeah. The Brooklyn Nets, only a game and a half ahead of the Raptors. Everything I've heard suggests that they're probably going to stand pat. The deadline maybe a team that adds players, so don't maybe necessarily don't have to worry about them too much. They should get better um, post-February. But you have the Charlotte Hornets, who are probably too far away at this point from the Raptors, um, for the Raptors to catch up to them, especially if they are in selling mode, which it seems like they are. But they haven't had a healthy LaMelo ball for a lot of the season. Maybe they could start to win some games, and the Raptors could start to win some games. Memphis. Memphis is a team you need to be watching right now, basically, or at least stands watching. You don't you don't watch the actual team, watch the stand, um, see how they're doing because they're. I mean, the Raptors are one game worse than them right now, thanks to that loss, and they very importantly split that tiebreaker as well. Um, the lottery, the draft lottery, is going to be a very important night for the Toronto Raptors. What else? I mean, like there's there's ways to watch a rebuilding team. There's also Watch the first quarter. You're not going to enjoy the fourth quarter. Turn it off. I think I think anytime <laughs> Thaddeus Young comes into the game for Jonte yeah. Porter, maybe that's make dinner at that moment. You know, like it's just I know the I know the games are on late too as well, and most Raptors fans are on the East Coast. You could you could get an early start to your bedtime routine. Maybe check out the post game press conferences in the morning on the way to work. So there's yes. there's ways to work around. There's like you know I think a harm reduction model is the is the way to go here. You're not going to completely quit the Raptors, but there's just ways to to watch them right now that are going to be good for both sides and you know create more long term patience. Which as you know, besides that in this press conference, many times is going to be important. How, how many people's New Year's resolution was to sleep better? And this is it. This is your chance, exactly. Is you you can finally exactly. put the screen away early. Mm-hmm. You can go to sleep, and you can get the the beauty rest mm-hmm. that you've so been craving and and chasing after for all of these years. Yeah, it's just the lottery one is still exactly. tough for me and because we're, we're I was we're at three week. Oh, just we're we're at the three week mark of the New Year yeah. too. That's kind of when a lot of resolutions kind of go out the wayside. So this is just a great way of creating the new momentum as well. Sorry, all of mine, all of all of mine are gone. I just I, it's it's funny for me with the lottery stuff because I spent the entire season rooting for the tank because they didn't have the pick. And I went, you know what? This is the only way that things are going to get done properly and in a timely fashion is if they lose these games and they really prove to Masai that this is the direction that he has to take because it's it's been clear and obvious to a lot of people for a long time. And from an entertainment standpoint, too, just watching this team be directionless and having the same conversations over and over and over again was difficult. And now I've shifted into the complete opposite, which is I want to see quickly RJ and Scotty uh, and Scotty Barnes work well together, win basketball games and stay just outside of the lottery so that they don't lose their 2025 pick and that they spread it around. So yeah, I, I will be watching these games actually more intensely. Now that I think about it, I'll be watching more fourth quarters, really rooting for them to close these games Mm. and win it so that they don't end up picking seventh in this draft and getting uh, a bunch of, I hate how I've already started reading, you know, I saw uh, KOC's draft guide came out and I'm reading it and going, there's nothing in here that's fun for me. <laughs> there's nothing, there's no guy in here that I'm I'm dreaming on. There's no scenario here where you're going, yes, this is the season that you want to end up picking first overall. And I, I kind of feel like that would be so 
so Raptorsy, so you're back Raptors fans as if you win the draft lottery somehow in the year where it's basically a bunch of Andrea Bargnani's at the top. Like, there's all these like seven foot white guys <laughs> that I, I could not be less interested in, but that's where we're back. That's, that's how, you know, the Raptors are completely back. Okay. Um, the Clippers mm-hmm. side of things, you were right. So it just, that's just start with that. You were right. You with it. Tra- James Harden trade first happened. Uh, we spoke about it and I was laughing at you going, I can't believe you think this is going to work. And the first week or so, it was exactly what I expected it to be. And then Harden drops the, I am the system quote. And it took everything in me not to just text you and go, this is who you backed. This is, this is the horse that you chose. We went down and we picked who we thought were going to be winners. And that was the Mm -hmm. one you picked the guy who said he was the system. And now all of a sudden they're the best offense in basketball. This thing is all working. It's been incredible. Um, I also, again, more credit to you is I didn't see anybody in any piece point out Kawhi's connection to the Spurs. Maybe it's so much from the past, but the fact that, yeah, he actually is used to playing with multiple Hall of Famers at the same time, granted in different phases of their career, but how much that has potentially helped what they're doing right now. But yeah, where, where do you most attribute the Clippers' success? Um, you know, I hate to, I hate to just completely accept this. I told you so, but I'm so rarely right that I actually have to double down <laughs> no. on it. I have, no, this is so good. I have text yeah, okay, evidence. Go. I have text evidence with another uh, person I like to talk to about the NBA after they lost the first five games, being like, eh, it's they got it. So, yeah. you know, I'm rarely, I, I rarely get to hit on these. So I just, I think I need to enjoy this moment. Um, I also, I forgot the question that you asked me because I was so focused on. Yeah, I was going to say, on, you're, on you should be ego. down. You should be down on the floor if they win. Like, you know, I think you should be wearing the championship hats. I think you should be getting the Steve Ballmer hug. I think there should be a section of the wall that is dedicated to you, like the Sierra Zoe section of the the wall in Los Angeles, because when no one believed in them, when everyone was down on them, you Mm -hmm. continue to double down and say, no, there's too much talent here that you think that this is going to work out. No, the question was simply, where do you most attribute their success? You know what they should do? They should, like, the Intuit Dome is still under construction. They should let me put down, like, a, a handprint on, yes. like, on, on concrete <laughs> that's still melting. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. And just right at the front door, wherever the most feet, wherever the most foot traffic is, is, like, people are going to sign their respect. They go, actually, yeah, you would, maybe you would want it above the door frame so that people do the jump up mm. uh, and, and touch it. it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the tap in, that's what you do as a Clippers mm-hmm. fan is you tap in by jumping up and, and high-fiving Seert who saw the vision all along. Yeah. By the way, that arena is, is ridiculous. They uh, let the media come in for when they announced that the Clippers are going to have All-Star in 2026. Oh, my God, that place is going to be. It's, it's just I've never seen anything like it. Anyway, uh, the Clippers is right now. I think – well. The, there are there are a number of things. I can't. I, I have a hard time saying there's one thing that went right. Um, I think the thing that people point to the most is Russ coming off the bench. Um, but I think if you actually look back at the games, like the last few games that he started, they were actually starting to figure it out with him as well. I'm still glad he's coming off the bench. They work a lot better with Terrence Mann as the starter. Um, he's picked it up from the three-point line, too. He was really struggling with his shot. He's an awesome. He's been an awesome cutter for them, but it just it it makes sense in the in sort of the way that we talked about, you know, where Kawhi was 
he gained a lot of weight, a lot of muscle in the last two years, was kind of already angling towards becoming a more post-oriented player, has become just a killer in the mid post, a killer in a way that we, we know, we know what he's capable of, but he was a lot more perimeter oriented, a lot more of those free throw line jumpers, which we still see. But right now it's like from four to seven feet, four to nine feet, he catches the ball. It's a bucket. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Cause he's so strong. Um, and he's, he's, it, it reminds me a lot of, the Raptors run and and when they had him that year, where because of how good and how steady he is, he is such a stabilizing presence for everybody else that, you know, when he has a night, like, for example, he had last night playing at the five and getting a triple-double, everybody else has reason to believe that, oh, yeah, we actually are a championship-level team because we have this guy. Uh, I think that James Harden has just found ways to match as well, I think that they had a lot of small problems in their losing streak. They won a lot of games. I mean, they lost a lot of games by just, you know, a few points here or there. The first game that they lost, they probably had a chance to win it, but they had a back-to-back the next night, and they kind of just pulled the plug early in the fourth quarter, um, which kind of shows you how they were feeling about it. I don't. I think, like, it was important that they got a couple wins under their back later on during that point, but I don't think that they – had this urgency of we need the results to make sense right now, um, which is, I think, part of the reason that they lost those games early. Uh, just, you know, right, like, it's, it sounds simple, but it's just, it is, that's how it's been. They just run their offense more smoothly. They know each other a little bit better. I think Paul George has really found his rhythm, too, in terms of, like, wanting, he kind of came in after Harden got traded and was being way too unselfish. And I think that's actually another factor to why things have worked as well. Is like when they were losing those games, it wasn't like it was because, you know, they were hogging the ball and they couldn't figure out, like, who should have it in the last moment, like, my turn, your turn, and all that. It was my turn, your turn, but it was because they kind of kept, like, passing the ball back and forth. It was, like, kind of being like, no, you got it. No, you got it. Um, and they needed to actually go and do the opposite thing. But they were kind of so scared of being unselfish that they stopped being themselves. And that's a much better problem to have than the opposite. And to, to have to tell your superstars to be superstars and to tell them to, to rein it in. So that's, I mean, there's a number of factors, but those are, those are a few of them. No, I think those are great ones. And yeah, it's, it's, it's very clear watching them that they, they have learned how to play together. And you do remember that they're, they're just a team full of high IQ players. And of course this was going to work out, but I, the thing I find most fascinating about them right now isn't even and and i don't know if this is like a chicken or egg thing like it was they make this trade and so it put more pressure on Kawhi, or if Kawhi finally felt healthier looks more dominant but you look across his numbers right if i if i just showed you was the look at these two pictures the office meme of pam beasley you would say these are the same pictures like his numbers his numbers are almost identical except for like his field goal percentage is marginally better and his three-point percentage has taken a step up but watching him play, it's just it's very clear that this is this is the the Kawhi of old. This is the Kawhi of the past. So all those guys absolutely get credit. You're right. There's a there's a multitude of factors. But the reason why I just believe that they're now the Western Conference title favorite. Like I'm sorry, I don't care how high the Timberwolves stay. That team, you know, their coach ripping them for being immature and playing that game that they did the other night, yeah. which is just like it was embarrassing. 
I don't think that they are going to beat the Clippers in a postseason series, not with this Kawhi. And and that's the thing that has really, I think, changed for me is I went from thinking, I think he's lost a step to, oh my God, he's totally back and, mm-hmm. and he could absolutely put together a, two, uh, a 2019 Raptors run again. Yeah, I agree. I think the only teams that the Clippers really need to worry about are the Nuggets because everybody, regardless of where the Nuggets yeah. are right now, I think I feel like they've taken a slight step back. Their bench isn't quite as good, and you know they're just not as dominant as they were last year. But they're also, you know, they're they're fine. I don't worry. Yeah, about the I, I just Nuggets. think Jokic um, against them—that's the one. That's their one Achilles heel. Yeah. I, I I can't get that out yeah. of my head his first game against them. And granted it was brand new, right? When they just got hardened and they faced Jokic, mm-hmm. but he just eviscerated them. And that was without Jamal Murray. They, I'm pretty sure. They also made the decision of going small against him, which I just don't think that they will do for an extended no. period again. And they ended up beating the Nuggets granted when, you know, Jokic was having a pretty st- tough stretch there, but they made him look really, really uncomfortable. And I think Zubac is one of those guys that you'd love to have in that situation guarding Jokic uh he's out right now but you know he should definitely be back um in time to like make you know get himself back in rhythm for the playoffs they also got Mason Plumlee back so they have they have some depth to to deal with him they have the perimeter defenders to deal with Jamal and uh and MPJ uh but the other team I would say is Oklahoma just because of their dribble drive attack I think like the Clippers defense right now is, I think, the last time I checked it, it was a couple of days ago, it was 12th in, in, in the NBA since they moved Russ to the bench. And that's good, but that's a defense that has some holes. And the biggest hole that they have is getting beat off the dribble, which makes sense considering the collective age of all their players, despite, you know, how solid they all are defensively. Um, that's the other thing, by the way, like, you, you're, you, like with Matt in the starting lineup and Zoo, like Kawhi, PG, you surrounded James Harden with – four plus defenders and he's trying harder on defense than I've seen him try in his life as well. So that's, that's, that's another sort of positive there, but yeah, it's like, OKC is a team that I specifically worry about against them. I think overall they still need to add another piece if they want to be a genuine title contender this year. But yeah, those are the two sort of teams in the Western conference that I get worried about with the Clippers, but everybody else, I'm just like, no, they're better than that than them. And they have the best player in the series. Yep. And the way I look at it with OKC is they're a nightmare for whoever they play in the postseason because they can knock off anyone. I just think it's too soon for their team and their build to make a deeper run. Like, I don't think that this is going to be, the, the 2.0 of their, their original group where they made that shocking title run and we went, holy crap, they're mm-hmm. here. Are they going to beat the Heat? And then they lost. I, I feel like that moment will come earlier against one of those two teams. But we'll see. I, I remain extremely impressed by them. And I can't believe the hellscape nightmare I live as a Seattle Supersonics fan that I endured the KD, Harden, and Westbrook era thinking that it was an inevitability. And then I had I got to watch it crumble beautifully. Clay Thompson, game six, just one of my most cherished sports moments ever and thought, okay, good. Now you all go back to your shanties, Oklahoma City fans. You go back to that dust bowl of a town where the basketball team maybe even le- – and then all of a sudden it's they get the – I think the greatest Canadian basketball player at the end of his career, I think we're going to consider Shea to be even better than Nash. And yeah, they do it with just a team that I love that I, I hate, but I still can't help but watch them because I enjoy them play so much. It's I, 
Sometimes mm-hmm. I do wonder. I, I do wonder if this this is hell that I have died and that I'm watching this Thunder team knowing that there's going to be some day where I watch them hoist a trophy and think about how it should have been mine and how deeply it will hurt. Anyway, uh, before you go, uh, you wrote a great piece on Embiid. And I'll close with this. You, third highest usage rate in NBA history, which is shocking. Couldn't get over last night how different the performances were his versus the Spurs were versus cats versus the Hornets and just how I felt watching the two of them. Uh, I thought you summarized it really well in your piece, uh, which is up by the way, again, on the ringer, it's uh, his best MVP cases now that he's not chasing it, uh, which does feel like that is the thing around Embiid. But the, the question I have for you is what do you, what do you think they do? Because I, I keep feeling torn around, wow, this team finally feels like they have chemistry versus, man, they kind of have a lot of urgency to make sure that they hit on one other move for Embiid. Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been asking myself that same question ever since I wrote that piece because that's immediately where my mind went to after as well. Um, I think right now they have the pieces to go get DeJounte Murray. I think this is an incredible time for a contender to – by incredibly low on DeJounte Murray, who is on a good contract, by the way, as well. Um, But at the same time, as it stands, after this season, they will not have anybody on the books beyond Joel Embiid, Tyrese Maxey, and Jaden Springer. And they can go out and be huge players in free agency. Free agency, as we understand it, also doesn't really exist anymore. And you also have to consider the fact that you can't when – you're, when you're building a team, I think this is one of the hardest things about building a team, is when you have a really great player like Joel Embiid, how much can you price in that he's going to continue to be this elite and that you're going to get this season again? Because he is having – the best season I've seen him have. He's having an incredible season, like 36 points per game, six assists, rejuvenated on the defensive end. He is doing everything you could possibly ask for him. And this is a guy that we historically, we know his, we know his injury issues from like the really catastrophic ones to now the ticky tack stuff that he deals with. We know that because of that, his ability to be consistent has waxed and waned. Um, he's also playing the Olympics this coming summer. So if you do decide that you're not going to make a move to make them better for this upcoming playoffs, you are risking basically wasting a year of Joel Embiid. And you don't know that after an Olympic run, he's going to be able to go and do that back to back. I think that's something they really have to consider. I also, I'm, I have questions about Murray. I have questions about whether he can reinvigorate himself defensively. I have questions about whether this three-point shot, which was recently developed, is sustainable. I don't know if it is. I have questions around, like, is he going to be willing to be, like, a 1B around Tyrese Maxey um, if he is willing to do all those things and if he can reinvigorate himself defensively. I think he's really close to what they need. I would also kind of – I would love a bigger wing as well. Um Jeremy Grant is out there, but his contract is huge, and that kind of does that. That kills. It doesn't kill them in free agency. I still think they could do some stuff in free agency, but it prevents them being able to get a max guy. I think one guy to look out for, even though things are going incredibly well for the Clippers, and I, 
you know, all indications are that Paul George will be back on that team. He has not signed an extension yet, and everybody on that team is going to have to sacrifice money. So I think Paul George is kind of a pipe dream for them, but if he's available, I just I can't think of a better fit for that team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Sirit, again, the work is really great. Thank you for making me feel dumber and smarter at the same time, and I appreciate the time today. So Sirit Zoe, that was fun, even if it was difficult to think about some of where the Raptors are at right now. Um, quick break, and we're going to come back and talk about one of the sports stories that has shocked me the most this year. Sportsnet 590, the fan. I've never been this distracted by the coaching cycle. And I know part of this is that I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan. So clearly I'm paying attention to this because they still don't have a head coach. They're one of only two teams remaining. But Adam Schefter today put it out there that it doesn't look like Bill Belichick's going to be coaching in 2024. And this is clearly not of his own volition. And I'm just blown away. I cannot get over this. When, when we first saw the available coaches and the Dallas Cowboys got bounced. And I was saying, Hey, Bill to the Cowboys, Bill to the Cowboys. When Nick Sirianni and his Eagles completely flamed out, Arthur blank and his relationship with Bill Belichick, I thought absolutely unequivocally the greatest coach of all time would land somewhere. He still wants that record. He still wants to be a head coach in the NFL. He's not taking these interviews because he's going, "Ah, I don't know, maybe twist my arm. All due respect to a lot of these coaches, and I get that there's definitely some situations that he should not be a part of. But for Bill Belichick to be on the sidelines for 2024 as he's chasing the all-time wins record, I, I, I can't remember too many things that were more shocking that weren't just individual game or series game outcomes, actual gameplay outcomes. Anyway, I got to talk about it a little bit with Ty, but we will get into championship weekend. That's next. The best weekend of football of the year. Incredible matchups. And yet I just, I, I gotta, I, keep, I gotta keep talking about the coaches because it's, it's so fascinating to me before I get into the championship stuff. Ty Dunn, one of the best columnists that writes on football, one of the best reporters uh, that's working in the game right now, creator of golongtd.com, one of my favorites. What's up, brother? What is up, JD? How you been, man? I'm good. I'm, I'm quite good. Uh, I will be better if the Seahawks don't panic hire Dan Quinn. But, uh, yeah, I'm remaining optimistic after reading reports that they're at least going to wait to see what happens with Mike McDonald and Ben Johnson. But I'm nervous. I'm nervous, buddy. But, okay, I got to start with this. I I think it's going to be Dan Quinn. I really do. I think I'm going to have bitched about Pete Carroll for all this time, and then it's only going to be worse Pete Carroll. Uh, Okay, so... Can you believe, though, dude, that in all of this, there were eight coaching vacancies. We thought the Dallas Cowboys flamed out in the first round. The Philadelphia Eagles flamed out in the first round. And I went, oh, my God, Bill Belichick is a free agent. This is going to be like LeBron's decision. We're going to see him courted. He's going to go around from a couple of franchises. And eventually, the greatest coach of all time will land somewhere else and chase the coaching record. And now, according to Adam Schefter, He's not getting a job in 2024. It really seemed as though the Falcons were the only team that was interested. And I understand that it's a it's a new era, right? And I understand that there's more than just coaching that comes with Bill Belichick. But can you believe that, again, eight coaching vacancies that he's on the outside looking in? 
it's unbelievable. I, I, I'm totally with you, and I get all of the reasons that you wouldn't hire Bill Belichick. You know, him wanting total control, wanting control of the building, personnel, his drafts have not been good. The last five years have been a disaster. I, I, I get all of that. I mean, he ran the Patriots into the ground, but all of that being said, he is the greatest coach of all time. Like, there's yes. something special in Bill Belichick. You can't tell me that there's 32 markets, 32 teams, 32 owners that all agree that he isn't worthy of one of these jobs. Um, it, it kind of blows my mind because I think that there's two ways to look at it if you're looking to hire Bill Belichick. Either you're a team that really needs to fumigate the building and you're looking for somebody to just kind of get, get the building right for a couple of years and he's a bridge to somebody else. I, I could see that, but more so, I see a team like the Eagles, the Cowboys. Hell, throw the Buffalo Bills in there. If they hired Bill Belichick, yep. they're winning the Super Bowl. You can't tell me a contending team couldn't make Bill Belichick their head coach and instantly be better. He's, he's still a great defensive mind. He, even, even if he doesn't relate to the players today, I get it. Like Everybody who's left Belichick has failed. Even then, he's one of one. I'd, I'd, I'm shocked that he's not a coach somewhere. Dude, the idea that those three franchises that you mentioned were willing to stand pat over take a shot at Belichick, uh, I think is, and and some of the other teams too, right? Because you could look at it and say simply, hey, how is Dave Canales a head coach when he was just a quarterback's coach, right? And I go, okay, no, he got, he just got a lot out of the the shorter quarterback in Baker Mayfield. I get why he would go and try to be the the person around Bryce Young. That's the most important thing for you. Okay, I get it. Antonio Pierce, he's not a better coach than Bill Belichick, but you would have had mutiny in your room. You can't bring in, you can't go from one Patriot to the next. I, I get it, even though these guys are clearly not to the level of Bill Belichick. But some of these passes, and I would say the Falcons and the Bills, and uh, yeah, to a, 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 I think the same extent, the Cowboys and the Eagles, this to me is more a reflection of corporate culture and, and where we're at right now as a society where you have manager types that rather than having the best talent in the best positions would rather keep their position secure would rather keep their power and not be challenged by someone even if it comes at the cost of winning and i i was talking to a former actually blue jays gm jp ricciardi a few months ago and he talked about how some organizations they they make you seem they, they may seem like they want to win, but the real reality is they're fine just being around it. They're fine just filling the seats. And, and that's the impression that I got. Again, corporate culture in North America, that is why Bill Belichick is not hired. More than any other myth that, oh, well, he's just, he's, the game has passed him by. That's such a great point because I really couldn't agree more. If you take it team to team, GM to GM, like Howie Roseman is – has been a survivor, man. Like he is, yep. he has been through several head coaches, and, and justifiably so. It, it, every time you think that Howie's done, he just he, he makes this uh, trade, drafts the players. Like, oh no, he still has his fastball, so he ain't gonna give up power. He doesn't want to give up control. I, you know, Dallas is Jerry Jones really going to uh, bring in a force of personality? Absolutely not. He he wants a coach that you know he can control. There's. It's so funny. We always think the Dallas Cowboys that that job is all flash and big names. It's not really the case. I mean, the one time they did that with Bill Parcells, it blew up. Otherwise, it's it's a bunch of Chan Gailey's and Dave Campos and Wade Phillips and Jason Garrett and Mike McCarthy wasn't exactly a, a wanted man when they hired him. And in Buffalo, Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott both 
report to Terry Pagula. Um, I, I know the ownership still believes strongly in Sean McDermott, despite five straight crushing playoff losses and wasting Josh Allen's prime. So they're not going to make a move. And, you know, it's kind of a two-way street, though, too. I think that Bill Belichick, you know, we're not in those rooms. So who knows what those conversations are really like or conversation, right? It was just Atlanta. It's going to take Belichick and his representation, making it clear to teams, hey, I don't need control of the whole building. I want a coach. If you want to keep your GM, if you want to have somebody in personnel, you know, have final say on the draft, then, then so be it. At this point, that's probably where he's at. He's going to have to relinquish some power to get a coaching job. And I, I guess if he was willing to do that, then we wouldn't be talking about Bill Belichick sitting out the 2024 season. He's, he's not ready to do that. I don't blame him. If he's the greatest of all time, you know, well, why should he budge? But that's probably what it's going to take for him to get a job right now. Mm. I, I can't believe I'm rooting for Bill Belichick. <laughs> this is where I'm at in my life. <laughs> this is this is where it's taken me, is rooting for Bill Belichick to get a job, maybe even with an NFC team, uh, maybe with a, a team that I, I normally would despise and, and don't root for their successes. But here we are. Okay, so championship weekend, uh, the actual football that's going to be played. If the Chiefs beat the Ravens, can we, like, are we ever going to be able to talk about the Chiefs in the regular season again? What, what are we supposed to do if this is the result this weekend? If he just picks apart the number one defense on DVOA and with this receiver core and they advance to the Super Bowl, I, I don't know what we're supposed to do with ourselves moving forward. I don't know how we can ever talk about the regular season in the NFL as though it's the one that matters the most ever again. It's so true. I, you know, living in Buffalo, it's kind of the same deal where I get it. You know, you you have this glorious run to the 44% club. 44% of the teams make the playoffs. It's, it's really not that much of an accomplishment if you've got one of the five best quarterbacks in football. So it's all about the playoffs for the Chiefs, for the Bills, for the Ravens, for the Bengals. Um, you know, if you've got a stud quarterback, like, just, just get by. Just find a way to get in. And then that's when we're going to judge you. We're going to judge you in the playoffs. If, the, if Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs go into Baltimore against the best defense in football, I mean, this is this Mike McDonald defense. I mean, they, they drag you into the back alley and just bludgeon you over the head. This is a violent, violent, belligerent group that has somehow managed to play that way in a modern league that, you know, it's not necessarily conducive to that. I, I thought the Legion of Boom was really the, the last vestige of uh, real football. I mean, this is a fun defense to watch. If they go in there and win that game, yeah, I mean, then we're having that Mahomes-Brady conversation again, and we're doing all that stuff. But I'm with you. I think that it's it's similar to the Golden State Warriors when they were at their peak, the San Antonio Spurs when they were at their peak. Just, just kind of find a way to get by, win your division if you can, get in, and then the real football begins. So with the, the Ravens' defense, I'll go there now since you brought them up. I feel as though one of the more overlooked storylines, and maybe maybe it's been there and maybe I've just missed it, but this unit is number one in DVOA in the regular season. They swarm to the ball. They hit you hard. They're nasty and deep and well-coached, and they've just obliterated teams this year. They've got the least points per game allowed, and they're facing one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. If they win this game and it's on the backs of the defense where they hold Mahomes under 20 points, uh, are they going to be able to have the stake of one of the greatest defenses of all time, especially considering the era heading into the Super Bowl? 
I think so. I mean, if you can, if, if you can stop Mahomes, God forbid, shut him down, you, you're probably having that conversation. I mean, this is a different game. I mean, every week during the regular season, we're all losing our minds Monday morning because some asinine roughing the passer penalty was called, and it, and it did not resemble anything that resembles roughing the passer. I mean, we, we were doing that all season. This is where the league's going. They're, they're spamming us with flag football infomercials every commercial break. I mean, they're, they're kind of planting those seeds already to what football is going to look like 10, 15 years from now. And here's a defense that can still hit you cleanly, um, you know, with, without drawing flags at every level. I think that we're probably having that conversation. And the more you think about this game, like, I, I love Mahomes. I love Andy Reid, the Chiefs. I mean, it's, it's special what they're doing. But they'll probably stick Kyle Hamilton on Kelsey and force these wide receivers to win one-on-one. I, I, I don't know if the Chiefs can. I think that the Ravens – they they pounded teams this year. It really wouldn't surprise me if they won this game by double digits uh, it, with the game plan that they have on defense. And, and you've got to give John Harbaugh so much credit for his ability to just kind of evolve over time where, you know, Wink Martindale was a really good defensive coordinator, but he's blitzing all the time. It got a, it got a little crazy. It ran its course. So they just bring back Mike McDonald. You know, he, he went to Michigan for a year. Bring him back. And it's more discipline, it's less blitzing, it's so fundamentally fun, fundamentally sound. And, you know, they did the same thing on offense, changing their whole offense for Lamar Jackson, and then that runs its course with Greg Roman, so you move to Todd Munkin. We've got to give John Harbaugh credit as one of the best coaches in the sport. If he wins this game, if he gets to the Super Bowl, if he wins the second Super Bowl, he's probably the best coach this, this era, you know, next to Bill Belichick and probably on par with Andy Reid. Hmm. Man, on par with Andy Reid, that's that's a tough one for me to wrap my mind around. Given that we have the six straight uh, AFC Championship games for the Chiefs, and just the way Andy Reid had, yeah, the 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 length of his career, the length of his successes from the Eagles to the Chiefs. But yeah, I would I would put Harbaugh right like behind him in terms of the the yeah. next tier down, the next guy. The, especially when it comes to being just like a culture builder and being able to identify talent, all of these different things, putting guys in the right positions to succeed, getting the most out of talent, right? Like I saw an image with, and I know this isn't all him, but I saw an image of Tyler Huntley in the Pro Bowl from a year or two ago. And I go, oh, right. I forgot that that happened. I forgot that the Ravens backup quarterback, all the mitigating circumstances that come with the Pro Bowl still ended up making it there. But yeah, I, the Ravens right now, though, they have to be treating the Chiefs and their playmakers as though, you know, you know when it's a, a fight, uh, a prize fight, but it's one of the, the prize fighters is a, a little past his prime, but you have to hype it up as though that's the exact same guy so that it reflects well on you if you win the fight so that people talk about you legacy-wise. That's the way the Ravens need to approach this because I think you're right. There's a scenario here where, yes, the Chiefs' lack of pass-catching options, lack of playmakers – that it, it really materializes in this game. But, okay, let's say it's close. Let's say that the Chiefs are actually able to move the football. Let's say that Rishi Rice is winning on the outside against, a, I don't know, a compromised Marlon Humphreys. That, that, that's actually happening in this game. Do you think the, the best quarterback in the NFL title is actually on the line in this game? Not of all time, not of, like, their generation, but, like, who holds the belt right now? Is that on the line for you? 
I mean, Lamar Jackson's going to be the MVP if he beats Patrick Mahomes in the AFC Championship. It's, it's a pretty strong case. Uh, I don't. I, I have a really hard time giving the mantle to anybody not named Patrick Mahomes. So he's correct. God, he's so special. And just yeah. you, you mentioned the receiving core. I mean, every week somebody's screwing up. He, I mean, Kadarius Tony's lining up offsides. Marquez Valdez-Scanlon's just dropping a pass deep. Maybe they don't get the call from a ref against the Packers. It's it's something crazy every week. And to see what he did to Buffalo, and I know everybody in Buffalo points to the injuries, justifiably so to an extent. And you've got A.J. Klein trying to cover Travis Kelsey one-on-one down the field. But, but Mahomes was perfect. I mean, he was perfect. And, and he's been perfect against that defense in three playoff games. It's He just takes his game to a different level at this time of year. So as much as I'm hyping up the Ravens and you know that they could win this by double digits, it's, it, it, it's a lot to do with Lamar, but it's a lot to do with that defense too. And I, I think that they'll, they'll win this game, but, but man, but it, that Mahomes factor, there's, there's not a DVOA, there's not an analytic you can always point to. It's just like he's got that Jordan in him where it's, everything's on the line late in the game. He just finds – Away, I mean, and it, it, how often did we see that with Tom Brady? I mean, he's like Michael Myers. You can't kill him. He just he's he's lurking behind the corner. That Mahomes still has that effect to him. To answer your question, regardless of how this game goes down, I, I still think Mahomes is is the best. Guess what? I'm totally with you. I feel like Mahomes could throw six interceptions in this game. Lamar could have the best game of his life. And I would still say that the, the belt is not transferring between these two players. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I think that the, the issue here is that we've done Lamar a disservice in the way that we've talked about him, essentially, like the, the vast majority of his career, right? He had the bad playoff record. He always had the weird offenses, the Greg Roman stuff, the lack of receiving options. But there, there, there is stuff about his game, right? He's, he still hasn't really proven to be an elite downfield passer, especially when uh, like the target is moving. There's a reason why they, they, they originally amassed the team to be, hey, these are huge tight ends that are going to stand in the middle of the field and you're going to hit them when they're still. Or you're going to hit a, a wide receiver with a bubble screen and they're going to try to move down the field. Uh, that they've targeted guys, right, like Hollywood Brown, like, like Flowers. So, yeah, I, I, I love Lamar. He's a difficult guy to evaluate at times. I think that he is one of the best players in the NFL, but I actually think the bigger, like, legacy thing from this game or stake for this game is all the other ownership groups and general managers around football that clearly colluded not to bring this player into their organization. Because if we get, if we get two weeks of Super Bowl coverage of Lamar Jackson, guess what the number one article is going to be? That this guy would have left the Ravens last year and that he was available to be had and God, you know, the Atlanta Falcons, congrats. You, you didn't end up with Bill Belichick. You ended up with a good hire, actually like someone NFC West fan here, great hire, but boy, oh boy, oh boy, is this going to look ugly for a lot of football teams? If Lamar Jackson is brilliant in this game and finally puts the playoff ghost to bed. Man, isn't that true? Like, and it wasn't just that it was, these teams weren't, uh, leaking disinterest via allies in the media. I mean, this was on, like, the Atlanta Falcons team website. Like, we are not pursuing Lamar Jackson. It was it was bizarre. And to, and to think in retrospect that the Atlanta Falcons, uh, 
you know, when they're not winning, they're pretty irrelevant in SEC country. So I think that that team could have Lamar Jackson and Bill Belichick right now. It's it's pretty unbelievable um, yeah. that that pairing just kind of slipped them on by. I, I guess that's why some teams stay irrelevant. You know, I, I don't know. It's, it, it, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it would have cost teams a lot of money for Lamar Jackson, but he was always worth it because there's nobody like him in football. There's no way to – to, to get ready to to practice for Lamar Jackson. He's so different than a Josh Allen even. Now, Allen's running all over the place last week, but he, he wants to run you over. I mean, Lamar Jackson is, is Barry Sanders in the hole. Go back two years ago, I think. They, they played Kansas City in a Sunday night game. There was nothing the Chiefs could do. I mean, they had got D. Lyman one-on-one with Lamar in the hole. They, they, they couldn't stop him. I mean, they couldn't figure it out. There's just, uh, he has that effect to him. I, I, it boggles my mind that a team didn't just say, all right, here's all the money, here's all the picks. We don't care what it takes to bring this guy in. Um, and, I, you know, as much as we want to sit here and try to explain away why, why Bill Belichick isn't getting interest, sometimes these teams and these owners just don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, the, the Lamar one is just insane, though, because, okay, I know he had the injuries, I know that we were coming off of Deshaun Watson when it comes to the guaranteed contract stuff. That was uh, an unknown variable with Lamar Jackson, but he's 27 years old. And the the big thing with him, too, is his teammates across the board, I don't know if there's a quarterback that's more beloved by his team that gets more buy-in from his team than, than that guy who relates more to everybody on his team than Lamar Jackson. Like he is just an incredible leader. And, you know, you speak about the, the Josh Allen runs people over thing. One of my favorite things in all of football is when Lamar is ending a scramble, right? He doesn't get hit hard very often because he's so elusive. Even when he's surrounded by multiple tacklers, he doesn't slide. He'll do this little shimmy shake move and then pick up like three or four more yards almost every single time. He, he's just about as untouchable as it can get. I, I'm a huge Lamar Jackson guy. I cannot believe being one of those franchises that did decide to pass on him, did decide that, yeah, Desmond Ritter and uh, Taylor Heineke window was more enjoy- Like, even if you got one year of Lamar, it's worth it. It's worth it to not have that season. Either way, yeah. I-, I think that we're just having a little bit of a tough time evaluating him for the same reason you just said as defenses have a tough time preparing for him, is that there's just nobody like him. And then it opens up so much in the passing game. I mean, you've got linebackers that are terrified of him as a runner and trying to break him down, and you're moving side to side, and you're, you're, he's keeping you off balance. And then Mark Andrews slips behind you. Isaiah Likely, Zay Flowers. It's, you're getting one-on-one matchups all over the place. And, you know, I'm with you. He's not throwing, um, throwing guys open consistently like these other elite quarterbacks, but he doesn't have to. I mean, you're so worried about it as a runner. Like, guys are just going to be wide open. He's just got to get him the ball. And then that's what makes him so dangerous. Yeah. Uh, okay, so last thing on this game. Where are you at with the officiating crew stuff? Because it's it's hard to ignore when the league does have the ratings they get the week before. And I'm not a believer in the script. I don't think that this thing is rigged. But I've always been a believer of, hey, leagues know what's going on. There's a lot of people in boardrooms that are aware of how impactful Taylor Swift has been on ratings. And to see, I think Sean Smith is the name of the official who has a, it's a 41% winning percentage 
for the home side when he officiates games. He's by far the friendliest, uh, by far the friendliest officiate, uh, the official when it comes to road teams. Do we just need more transparency on stuff like this? Like, like just what, what are your thoughts on it? Oh my God. You know, transparency with NFL officiating, I think, uh, yeah. Uh, we're, we're more apt to see pigs fly or anything. It's just it, Detroit Dallas game. It was so blatant. It was such a mistake, such an error. It wasn't even a judgment call. The, uh, Taylor, I mean, they, Taylor Zecker reported, you see Dan Skipper doing what he was doing and they couldn't even admit they made a mistake. I mean, they yeah. try to explain it away. It sounds like, you know, my four-year-old daughter, when she's, <laughs> you know, try, trying to explain why she clearly did something wrong. I mean, that's basically the NFL after these mistakes on that NFL officiating account. I don't. I try not to pay attention to any of this because it's not fun. All it does is bum me out. So I didn't even know any of that stuff that you're telling me, JT. Like, I, the last thing I want to do is think about this awful part of the game. I, mean, I probably should because you make a good point. I mean, especially with uh, – the NFL wrapping its loving arms around gambling and, you know, throwing all those ads in our face. They they deserve all the scrutiny that they get. I mean, I, I don't blame fans at all for thinking a game is rigged when they're hearing DraftKings ads all the time. Like, this is, this is what the NFL deserves. I mean, they deserve, you know, the fans not trusting the product that they see on TV when they're going all in on gambling and, you know, ruining lives in the process all over the country. So, in that sense, chaos is kind of fun, and chaos is good because uh, the NFL really doesn't have any morals. I just, I, I just don't understand what they have to lose with opening up to the public at this point. Again, if you are going to take all the gambling money, I'm fine with it. I think that football is not no, it's not going to be what it is moving forward without gambling. All of live sports need to be embracing gambling. Everybody does. It's just, it's a huge part of the what we do now. But if we're going to do eyes in the sky and we're going to have a million different cameras and we're going to have all this information and we're going to have people. It was Warren Sharp, by the way, that put this together about the officiating crew. All I want is some accountability when officials make egregious effort uh, uh, so errors, not not like a missed pass interference, but one like the Lions Cowboys game that you referenced. Like I, I need a little bit more than a pool report at the end of the game. But the bigger one is when we get to the playoffs and we get to these, you know, night games that are supposed to be uh, you were graded out as the best official. I don't think it's too much to ask for fans that are putting down this much money and are being told to put down money and being told that the game is totally on the up and up and that there's no shadowy decision making behind the scenes that how you grade these officials like. Why can't we see it as though it's a DVOA, right? We get a lot of public information on players. Why can't we get a little bit of information on officials? Like, that's, that's the part that I just remains completely misunderstood by me, unless it's for nefarious reasons. No, I mean, it, it, if you're a player and if you even think about criticizing an official, you're fine. It's, there's yeah. no accountability. They're, 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 yeah, I, I just completely agree. I mean, why, why can't we just see who's consistently made good calls, who's consistently made bad calls, make them full-time. Just, it's such an important part of the game. There's, there's jobs on the line. There's money on the line. It's, it, for, the, for there to be so much ambiguity, it, it does stain the product. I mean, that's, that's not extreme to say. 
No, I totally agree. Okay, so you spent you spent a lot of time focused on the Lions this season. Again, people should go to golongtd.com. You, if you're a Lions fan, listen to this, and I know you're out there because you're just like me. You love the Lions. They are North America's team right now. If you're outside of the Bay Area and you're cheering for anyone other than the Lions this weekend, you got no soul. You got no heart. You belong in Moon Jail. Like there's there's nothing nothing can save you. I'm sorry. This is all about the Lions, but there's. There's so much great coverage on your site right now for the line, so I implore people to go look at it. But now, rational side of the brain coming along. Have we gotten a little too carried away with their chances in this football game? Have we become a little bit too enamored by the story and a one-off poor performance by the Niners? Or are you really believing that the Lions are going to be hanging around this football game and really pushing a 49ers team that all season long looked dominant? Yeah, I'm driving back from uh, Allen Park, Michigan right now. I'll actually be uh, finding a Starbucks soon to post my story story on the team, trying to explain this grit. I mean, it's the word that has been drilled into our skulls the last three years. So, like, what what does what the hell does it mean? How does it kind of manifest itself? I I think it's real. I, I really do. I mean, I, the Niners didn't play well last week. Green Bay blew that game. They they had about 10 opportunities, 10 plays, if any one of those goes their favor, they, they beat San Francisco. Now, I, San Francisco is going to play better, and, you know, the lack of Debo Samuel was a major factor, obviously. But Detroit's not scared. I mean, they're going to go in there with an offense that can hit you in a million different ways, through the air, on the ground, the best offensive line in football. No, no, no worries about the offense. Even playing outdoors, it doesn't look like the weather will be – too much of a factor, uh, and defensively, all it takes is one hit, one turnover, and you can kind of flip these playoff games. We've we've seen it. Uh, they've got their flaws, uh, you know, in the secondary. They've got holes, so don't get me wrong. And the pass rush outside of Aiden Hutchinson is nothing but crickets. But maybe you get James Houston back. You know, he's been out all year with a broken fibula. The guy's a freak. I did a story on him before the season. Um, there's nobody built like him off of the edge. I, I think he's a special. Uh, specialist off the edge. Maybe he gives you something, and it just takes one play. Aaron Glenn, the defensive coordinator, I don't know if you saw it, he said that their plan is to bite faces off. So they've moved on from kneecaps, and they're going to bite faces now. So maybe Hi. San Francisco have to watch out for that. But I, I see Detroit going in there and Detroit winning, being undaunted. Mm-hmm. They've got the edge of quarterback. Um, I take Jared Goff over Brock Purdy. I think their weapons, you know, they're not San Francisco's weapons, but they're damn good. And defensively, I think they'll do just enough to get just those two or three stops that they need. So I think that's actually a really uh, a fascinating part of this is we've had this Brock Purdy uh, referendum all year long. Is he good? Is he bad? Is he a system quarterback? Is he better than that? Is he is he a top? Is he an MVP candidate? Is he a top 10 quarterback? Is he could anybody play with the Niners? Is there anyone that has more to lose? Because I think if we're talking about gain, it's got to be Mahomes and Lamar in that game, just given the the nature of the stakes and who those two guys are and the established uh, feeling about the the play of those two players. But is there anyone with more to lose this weekend than Brock Purdy? Hmm. Kyle Shanahan, right? I mean, if we're, if we're going to include coaches, to yep. and I I think that it's warranted. Where let I me mean, take it all the way back to twenty eight to three. He's the offensive coordinator. You you blow that game. You throw the ball, and I mean, if you just run it into a 
brick wall. You kick a field goal, the game's over. And then as the head coach in another Super Bowl, you're up by 10. You lose that. Uh, and central to all of this, look, he's schematically maybe the best in, in the business. There's a reason that other teams are copying what San Francisco does. Uh, but you got to get the quarterback position right. And his plan has just changed on a dime to go start it with Brian Hoyer. I mean, you think you can win with a Brian Hoyer year one. You trade a, you trade a pick for Garoppolo, then you pay him a ton. He takes you so far uh, that the throw to Emmanuel Sanders that he couldn't hit. So, okay, now we're going to find our own freak show. We just got tasered by Josh Allen on Monday Night Football. That's what I need to get, he's thinking. And, and you trade three first-rounders for Trey Lance, and then that doesn't work out. You go with Mr. Irrelevant. You're kind of going back to the to, to the point guard, you know, the just, just, just the playmaker, somebody who's just going to hear the play, run the play, know exactly where to go with the ball. That's a skill. But, you know, there was a point there where Kyle Shanahan really thought he needed uh, a transcendent talent, a dual threat. A, a, a freak show of a quarterback, and he went for it, and then he gave up on it, and he kind of went back to what he had before. If they lose this game, that's not Kyle Shanahan. Like, it, and I think that's a conversation worth, worth having, where you can you can have everything else right. You can draft as well as it drafted, and and sign the right players. It doesn't matter if you swing and miss a quarterback. And they didn't miss on Brock Purdy. Don't get me wrong, but we're we're talking Super Bowls when it comes to San Francisco, not division titles. Yeah, that's it. It's just it's very, very clear that even an appearance is not enough for the San Fran team, right? They're so deep, they're so loaded. It's impossible not to think about what they could have had had they not traded those three firsts for a, frankly, just a complete bust at quarterback. Yeah. The fact that they've been able to do this. And yeah, we've always, I think a lot of us who watch football week in, week out feel like if we could have one coach, it would be Kyle Shanahan right now. And yet, here's this miss on the resume. And I know everyone made a deal about how they came back against the Packers. I'm like, I refuse to. That That's not what we were talking about, <laughs> okay? That was not some huge hole they were in. Yeah, Jordan Love, uh, what was it, 21 to 17 or something like that. And he throws that pick that gets the overthrow in the middle of the field that gets snagged by Fred Warner. He's got a missed kick from his kicker, the Packers. I, I want to see one where they actually are in tough against a team and can push the ball down the field, can lose a guy like Debo Samuel and actually be able to overcome it with their offense. So, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, that's probably the answer more so than Brock Purdy because Brock Purdy, he, he, he is what he is. He's Mr. Irrelevant. The bar is probably yeah. lower in terms of the expectation. But for Kyle Shanahan, if he truly wants to be considered one of the greatest coaches ever, which to him should be on the table, it's going to have to come with wins like this. Um, okay, so last one on the game. Is there anything more important than who can establish the run? Like, I know we talked about the quarterbacks, but I feel like both these teams, their identity is going to flow through that. And I don't know who I trust given Detroit having a banged up offensive line and knowing that the Niners are better up front defensively. But yeah, just it does feel like a pertinent question for this game. I think what, you know, what, what, what trick does Dan Campbell have up his sleeve for this game? He's going to do something funky. You just know he is. Uh, against Dallas, it's, it's sending an offensive tackle out on the two-point play, and then that was ruined by the refs, obviously. Uh, against Tampa Bay, I mean, late in the third quarter, fourth and goal from the one, tied game, and you've got Craig Reynolds, your third-string running back from, from Cutstown, a D2 school who's been cut seven times, 
he hasn't touched the ball since October. You hand him the ball in that situation. Like, Loved it. What, what, what's he going to do? He's going to do something in San Francisco, Santa Clara. He's going to yeah. try something that we're not even wrapping our brains around right now. So I, I don't know what that is. Uh, but, it, you know, he's done the fake punts several times. Some have worked, some haven't. He's gone for it on fourth down. You know, it, it hits about that half the time. Uh, the, he, he's going to go out swinging. Like, he's not just going into this game and coaching in a conventional fashion. Like, you know that Dan Campbell and Ben Johnson, his offensive coordinator, are going to do something that has us talking on Monday, you know, ad nauseum about. Totally agree. I, 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 I got to tell you, though, too, I can't – do you remember a game where – it felt this one-sided in terms of fan base. If, if you're a fan of any team other than the Niners, you're cheering for the Lions, right? Like, there's no – and the and the Niners, like, unequivocally, I think, represent a, a better Super Bowl, right? Like, it's going to be either Niners-Ravens rematch, think about the way we felt about them in the regular season, or Chiefs-Niners Super Bowl rematch. And yet, like, yeah, if you found a person that was not a Niners fan that told you that they were cheering for the Niners, wouldn't it just blow you away? Wouldn't it shock you? I have yet to meet a person that just said, God, I hate the Lions. They're just, it's not, they're just it's not possible. Nobody hates the Lions. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. They, they have totally stolen the mojo of what the Bills had at the very beginning of Josh Allen, where everyone went, oh, my yeah. God, this is so fun. Yeah. The Buffalo Bills are so fun. They're so likable. We're rooting for the Bills. We're rooting for the Bills. And, yeah, that, that's now what this team is. So enjoy it, Lions fans. I think that this is the ultimate game of good versus evil. You know, you've even got the, the Niners wearing the red, the devil red, versus the good, the, the, the holy, the, the Detroit Lions, everybody's team. I can't wait for it. And I hope, I hope that you're right. I hope that whatever Dan Campbell has – up his massive sleeve that covers that huge bicep that it works out for the Detroit Lions because, man, God, would it be so fun to keep this story going. Uh, Ty, again, uh, look forward to the work again later today. Lions fans, keep an eye out. Go to golongtd.com. You you will not regret it. Easy, easy subscription. The best columnist in, in football, in my opinion. Great reporter. Ty Dunn. Uh, s- safe drive. Good luck at the Starbucks. We'll talk to you later, buddy. Hey, man, always love talking football with you. Thanks so much for having me, J.D. Always, pal. See ya. Uh, Ty Dunn. Get one of the best. Yeah, it's, it is. It's good versus evil this weekend. If, you, if you're a Niners fan, you should feel bad. You should. How, how are you the way that you are? Right? Like, you're Toby. Deplorable behavior, being a Niners fan. Truly, truly bottom of the barrel stuff doesn't get any lower in sports in my opinion it it just doesn't that's as that's as low as you can go and the, the idea that anyone would be watching on their couch in a sports bar in a stadium and they would be hoping that those awful awful 49ers would beat those beautiful charming charismatic in lovable Detroit Lions, it's a, it's a real shame. It's a real shame that you can't be a part of this. But that's classic Niners. That's classic Niners. That's classic their fans. All of it. I, if I was, if if God forbid I was a Niners, I I I would know. I have the I have the moral fortitude. I have the moral fiber that I I would abandon that team. I I would. And I my grandfather was a Niners fan. I say that with deep shame. He loved the Niners deeply. And so I was raised in it, and I still didn't go to the evil. 
because I'm I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. Anyway, before we break, I just want to wrap this up with the the Mahomes. I think is just going to go down as one of the, he's going to go down as the greatest or the second greatest. It's, it's going to be very LeBron versus MJ with him and Tom Brady moving forward. Does anybody see Mahomes dropping off? Does anybody not see this happening over and over and over again? They're going to go in the offseason. They're going to add a weapon. This is him with the worst weapons he's ever going to have. It's really, really hard to envision them having this little explosion on that offense moving forward. I don't think Andy Reid is going anywhere. Spagnuolo is there to stay. They've got a young defense. The Chiefs are going to be fine. Mahomes' legacy is not getting altered in a, a material way in this championship game. He'll just, he'll be there. He'll have other opportunities to be there. And he's already got, he's already got the resume, right? We just said it. I think if you're a reasonable person, you know that the best quarterback in the NFL title isn't up, isn't up in this game. You, you know, it it's, it's not, it's not there. Come on. It's not your life's on the line. You're taking Patrick Mahomes a, a thousand out of a thousand. There's, there's no number where you go, well, you know what? There's no situation even where you're like, oh, you know, I want Lamar. No, there's not. It's not. It's not happening. He'll be back. Yes. Does it add to the legacy? Yes. Does it make it easier to chase Tom Brady? Of course, all of those things are obvious. But to me, the, the legacy weekend comes down to Lamar and this Ravens team. There's so much at stake for these guys because of how good they are. Because we've sort of overlooked them at times. We've gone, oh, well, maybe Lamar gets hurt. Oh, yeah, well, the Ravens have blown a lot of leads. Ah, oh, well, Harbaugh, late game situation. What is he really? Hasn't been back in a while. His brother gets all the headlines. Hey, he just won again at Michigan. But I really think that these things are on the table. One, Ravens defense wins, and they're just dominant. They play this way. They beat the Chiefs up, and then they go into a Super Bowl and beat up their opponent. You're, you're, you are, Ty's right to bring up the Legion of Boom because we haven't seen a defense that's like this since then, potentially, based on the way that they play these next couple of weeks. That we'll make the case for when we do the, when you see those Instagram slides of best defenses ever, and you're scrolling through it, that you see that you see this unit there. And that's something pretty special, given that the Ravens have had multiple special defenses. Harbaugh, Ty already made the case. I totally agree with it. But the big one to me is, Lamar wins this game. And he beats the Chiefs. And then he's three and three in playoff games. And we're kind of throwing some of the old ones out. We're saying, ah, he was a rookie in one. And here's another where it's the Titans team that just completely took him by surprise. It just, it goes away. It does. It goes away. You, you can't say Lamar is a playoff joker. You can't point to the numbers in the playoff games anymore if Lamar has a, is a good performance against the Chiefs. And he does it especially against that defense, which is also very good against that coordinator, Spagnola. It, the bar moves for Lamar immediately from playoff joker or, or weak playoff resume to just normal. Good, if, if anything. He absolutely get, has his MVP this year. He deserves his MVP this year. But he goes from all-time fun player, all-time cool player, to all-time great player with a Super Bowl appearance. And he needs it because that is how we judge greatness. I'm sorry. I don't – you got all these regular season numbers. That's nice. You, you got to get in. And I don't care if Mahomes is there blocking your way. And this is the first time that he has. So Lamar Jackson, this is there's, – there's nobody with the greater legacy stake going into this weekend. There's absolutely nobody, in my opinion, 
with more to gain in the way that we talk about this person, the way that we revere this person than Lamar Jackson heading into this weekend. By the way, I'm going to, again, I mentioned it, but I already love some props for this weekend. I've already picked my sides for this weekend. So follow me on Twitter and Instagram at JD Bunkus. Uh, I was red hot last week and I hit all my props. Perfect five for five. Pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. I was on the wrong side of one of the games, which is I thought the Bucks would cover just given they were the best team on the road this year when it came to covering, but mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. Baker. Either way, follow me there and uh, I'll share a bunch of picks Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, but first, before we take this break, before we take our final break of the show, it's the final day to win tickets to the NHL fanfare. Uh, I've gotten a lot of people reaching out about this. There are tickets that are available still right now for purchase NHL.com backslash fanfare. So if you, if you haven't won any of these tickets this week, go, go ahead there, grab a set of tickets. Prices are totally reasonable. So yeah, go, go take a peek, but yes, ahead of the 2024 all-star game, the Rogers NHL all-star game. We will be giving away tickets to the NHL fanfare coming to Toronto from February 1st through the 4th. So today is the final day that you can listen to the code word on the episodes of the JD Bunkus podcast, which you subscribe and you review to. Um, and today you text the code word to 59590 and you get a chance to win. So today's the final day. Today's code word is Nylander. This is our last code word. And again, I mentioned it head on over to nhl.com backslash fanfare while supplies last and grab a ticket to the weekend. If you really want to go to the sucker anyways, quick break, wrap up the show. Another blue Jays target comes off the board and things are starting to get desperate. That's next. Sportsnet 590, the fan. All right. Thanks again to everybody that listens to this podcast. Yeah. If you are listening on iTunes or Spotify, please leave a review. Please share it because it really does help people find it, helps it grow, helps get better guests, everything. So appreciate all of you that have already done it. And those of you that are considering doing it now. So we have baseball games in a month, not regular season, but still season's getting pretty damn close. It's not forever away. We're is January. I can't tell if January flew by because it's over now or if it was long. If I think it was long. I think it was for me a long January. But it closes with another Blue Jays target signing with a team that we're actually a little too familiar with. Jock Peterson. The lefty specialist bat. He signs a one-year deal with the Diamondbacks for $9.5 million. Reasonable contract, nice contract, good for Jock Peterson. Um, there's there's a couple of ways of looking at this. Well, the first one is undeniable, which is the Diamondbacks really, really, really want to be the Blue Jays' what-if team. Because, yeah, it's it'd be hilarious if we watched them make another Deep World Series run and Jock Peterson gets hot. And we have to listen to an entire season of he was actually the target. The Jays were really interested. Yeah, yeah, we're good. We're good on that. But there's there's two things to think of here. One, let's start with the positive, which is one year, 9.5 million bucks for Jock Peterson is a good sign of things to come. Should the Jays go the J.D. Martinez, Justin Turner, Solaire way? I would assume anyways that, the, you know, again, we're getting late in the market. Teams have made a lot of their moves. I'd have to go through it with a little bit more fine detail in terms of how many teams need players like that. Obviously you can always use a better bat. Obviously you can always use more depth, but 
who's going to be really willing to be as aggressive, I would hope, as much as the Toronto Blue Jays are for those positions. Because let's be honest, the Blue Jays have to overpay for free agents. It is what it is. Who cares? I don't know why we have to pretend like it isn't a thing. So yeah, they're going to have to get a little bit more aggressive for one of these guys. Boba Shett mentioned the last two guys, J.D. Martinez and Justin Turner, again on Jeff Blair's podcast the other day. So if you haven't listened to that, the interview is available to you. But yeah, Justin Turner's 39. He came off of a good season. J.D. Martinez, also coming off an all-star year, has been actually very, very good in his 30s. I really don't hate the idea, especially if you're just looking at him as basically a pure DH, someone who's not really going to play in the outfield for you. Don't mind those. Bellinger feels like a bit of a pipe dream now. Chapman, to me, has never made sense, just given the amount of money that he's going to command, the amount of money and term. I don't like the Blue Jays committing that to Matt Chapman, given what we saw last year and given a bunch of the decisions they have to make moving forward. Bellinger at least has the higher ceiling, I think, of the the two guys. I think he fits the team a little bit better. But it's it's really feeling like now Soler and J.D. Martinez. So you're running out of options. The, the positive is maybe it's not going to break the bank. Maybe there isn't as many teams out there or there aren't as many teams out there that are that are chasing these guys based on that price point. But the downside is, is <laughs> you're... Those are the the names that are left, okay? I, I don't want to see other ones. I've gone through every free agent list uh, imaginable, and I'm sure that there's some stats nerd, regret, positive regression guy that's out there. But yeah, you're looking now at a 39-year-old Justin Turner. J.D. Martinez, I think, turned 37. Soler, who to me is the, the best fit out of them all in terms of his offensive profile, and then the Bellinger pipe dream. So realistically, you might only have three options left. It's getting thin. It's getting thin. Probably jump the market on the one that you like the most. This would be my advice to the Toronto Blue Jays. Anyways, thanks to everybody who was listening on the weekend. We've got Leafs Talk Saturday before the All-Star break and then a very, very, very busy week following championship weekend here. And uh, yeah, a a real break point in the Leafs schedule. All right, subscribe and review. We'll see you Monday.